Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, everyone. I welcome you here this morning. Glad you could be with us. God has seen us through yet another week, and we are thankful for that. There's a lot being said in our world today about the Bible, the Scriptures. Is it true? Is it trustworthy? Can I rely on it? Is it just a compendium of myth and legend and religious history and personal letters and religious teaching. And you may believe a lot, uh, well, let me rephrase that. You may believe that the scriptures are true. You may believe that it is more than just legend and uh, religious history, particularly Jewish history and uh, Christian letters to Christian people and so on and so forth. But maybe you struggle with uh, a number of other people who believe that it's flawed still, that there are contradictions Particularly if you take one version of the Bible, say the King James Version, and you compare it with the New American Standard, or you compare it with the New International, or you compare it with the Living Bible, you know, one of a number of different versions, you can see that there are differences in there, and that may lead you to think that maybe there are contradictions in Scripture. There is no contradiction in Scripture. When studied carefully and prayerfully, the Christian will realize that there are no inconsistencies in the Word of God. No inconsistencies in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy... Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. If the Bible contradicts itself, if there are contradictions in Scripture, if there are inconsistencies in Scripture, then God would not be true. God would not be true. He would not be the holy and righteous God who is truth. His Word, the Bible, would be untrustworthy. And Christianity would be a religion that is 
confused, and in chaos. But there are no contradictions in the Bible. However, there are paradoxes in Scripture. There are paradoxes in Scripture. A contradiction, in case you didn't know, a contradiction is a statement or a proposition that denies itself. A statement or a proposition that denies itself. Or it denies another passage of Scripture. And it's logically incongruous, inconsistent, conflicting. A paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but it really expresses the truth. It only seems to be contradictory or absurd. And there are many paradoxes in Scripture. Let me give you just a few. Was the Bible written by men or by the Holy Spirit? You don't need to answer that. Was the Bible written by men or the Holy Spirit? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we've read that. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that the Holy Spirit was the author of Scripture. But in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul said that he was the author of the book of Romans. And yet, in Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, verse 22, it says that Tertius wrote the book. So is there contradiction here? The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Paul was the author of the book of Romans. Tertius wrote the book of Romans. Is there a contradiction here? No. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to dictate to Tertius the words written in the book of Romans. Paradox, yes. Contradiction, no. We just finished spending a few weeks on what many theologians call the kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, it states that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. How can that be? If you're fully God, how can you be anything but God. And if you're fully man, how can you be anything but fully man? And yet, Scripture tells us he was fully God, he is fully God, and he is fully man. Paradoxical? Yes. Contradictory? No. What about your salvation? What about your salvation? Does, well, did, if you're a Christian, did God choose you for salvation or did you choose to be saved? Think about this. Think about it. Did God choose you 
for salvation or did you choose to be saved? In Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he also said in John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So, did you choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Or did Jesus Christ choose you to be saved? Contradictory? No. Paradoxical? Yeah. And I could go on and on and on, but you get the picture here. We're going to begin to look at another paradox, again in Philippians chapter 2, but we're going to turn to verses 12 and 13, and we're going to look at this, these two passages, these two verses of Scripture for a few weeks. And so if you want to go ahead and, and turn there, to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. So there are paradoxes in Scripture, but there are no contradictions. There are no inconsistencies. There are statements and propositions that seem to be contradictory, but when you study them carefully and prayerfully, you'll understand that they're not inconsistent and they're not contradictory. They simply open your eyes to the greater truth that God has given to us in His Word. Now in Romans chapter 8, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, the Apostle Paul reveals to us what is called the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. And as he... As he speaks about this golden chain of redemption, he also discloses the steps. The steps in which an unsaved person is brought to full conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Listen as I read Romans 8, 28 to 30. <clears throat> we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Here begins the golden chain. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, He also called. Whom He called, these also He justified. And those whom He justified, these He also glorified. The links in this golden chain of redemption, God's foreknowledge, our predestination, to be called, to be justified, to be glorified. These words are very important words to know and to understand 
if the individual is going to fully, really, truly understand what salvation is all about. And I would challenge you, uh, take some of these difficult passages of Scripture that we're so prone to uh, just read through quickly and move on to other easier passages of Scripture. I would challenge you to get your Bible dictionary or to get a concordance or uh, some other Bible tool that will help you understand what these words mean. They will open up a world of height and breadth and depth of, of, uh, of theology, of God's theology given to us in his word. And it will help you to appreciate the salvation that he has blessed you with far more than you appreciate it now. The one word in this golden chain is justified. I just want to mention this for a moment. Justified. It's a legal term. It's a legal term in which God declares a person forgiven of all sin, and he declares that person to be righteous before him. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. How many of you this morning, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you this morning believe that you do sin from time to time? Now, I know some of you don't sin from time to time. You sin all the time. <laughs> there's not an individual in this room, there's not an individual in any church you can find anywhere where sits an individual who is completely sinless. And yet, Scripture tells us that when we are saved, God declares us justified. What does that mean? That means legally in the courts of heaven, when you are saved, God does not see you as a sinner anymore. You see yourself as a sinner and maybe other people see you as a sinner, but God does not see you as a sinner anymore. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. You are washed. You are purified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You are justified before God. And you are declared to be righteous. That means God sees you and what you do as fulfilling and completing His will and purpose in your life. It's another word for salvation. Justification is another word for salvation. And it occurs, listen, it occurs immediately when you repent of your sin and believe and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's something you don't have to wait for. The moment you confess, receive, because you believe in Jesus Christ, immediately you are justified, you are holy before the Lord God. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, having been justified, and that's an important passage to understand, having been justified, aorist tense here, it is, a, it is an action, it is a completed action in the past. You have been justified in the eyes of God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But let's say, 
Let's say a person is saved at age six. I was saved when I was six years old. My daughters were saved when they were six years old. Some of you have been saved when you were much younger. Some of you not. But let's say a person is saved at age six, and then that person dies at age 86. Saved at six, dies at 86. What goes on during those 80 years? From the time of new birth in the kingdom of God till the time the individual graduates to go on to be with the Lord in heaven. What happens in those 80 years of life? Well, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Dr. A.T. Robertson writes, that this is the gradual change, the gradual change in us till we acquire the likeness of Christ, the Son of God, in full. In other words, what should happen to a Christian from the moment of new birth in the kingdom of God till the time that they are glorified by going to heaven, leaving this life and going to heaven, they need to be progressively, they need to be gradually changed from what they are as a sinner to what God wants them to be by being conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to be less like we are as a sinner in this world and more like Jesus Christ who saved us. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. I've known some individuals. Uh, I remember when I was in college and I was working down in town Riverside in, in a title company, had gotten a job there, and there was a young guy who was working, and, and he was probably in his early 20s, and he, had, he, was, he was what we called back then in those days one of the Jesus people from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Uh, he was saved, and he was really excited about his new faith in Jesus Christ, and he wanted to be just like Jesus. He wanted to be just like Jesus. He wore his hair long, parted down the middle, wore a beard, grew a beard, wore sandals to work, which the boss didn't like, but uh, he did anyway. He wanted to be just like Jesus, and I, told, I pulled him aside, and I said, look, brother, to be like Jesus doesn't mean you dress like him. It means you live like him. You embrace his attitudes. You, you demonstrate the Christ life in you. And so he immediately got started uh, cramming, reading, uh, hour after hour after hour on his own time, reading the Bible and memorizing passages of Scripture and, and doing all of this, going out on, in downtown Riverside street preaching and handing out chick tracts and all of those other kinds of things. And, and I applauded him and I encouraged him. I said, go for it, man. Do all that Christ in his Holy Spirit is calling you to do. But understand, understand that you are not going to be fully conformed to the image of Christ overnight. It is a lifelong process. I didn't tell him to slow down. I was simply telling him, don't burn out. 
you're not going to be able to become in the full image of Jesus Christ until we graduate into heaven. It's a lifelong process. It's God's desire that all Christians become like Jesus. And let me say that again because some of you didn't hear it. It is God's desire that all Christians, and that includes you, his desire that all Christians become like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Salvation is that justification. While being perfectly holy in righteousness is that glorification. Salvation is when you're born into the kingdom. Glorification is when you graduate on into the kingdom, when this life is over. That period in between, those 80 years in between, is what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification. I know these are big words, uh, and they may not register with you, but that's okay. We're going to explain them as we go along. The gradual change from salvation to glorification is called sanctification. It is a process, a progressive work, a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, week-by-week for the rest of your life. It is a progressive work that makes you less like your sinful self and more like Jesus Christ every day that you live. Now, Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 12 and 13. Stand with me as we read these two verses. Now, we've spent a long time in verses 5 through 11, and we're not going to go back there at this point. But in verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, understand that, mark that, When you find the word therefore, the writer is drawing a conclusion based upon what he said before. So based upon what Paul said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and all of the stuff that he mentions after that, therefore, based upon all of this, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is the word of God. We pray his blessing upon the reading of the word. You may be seated. Here we have a paradox. Here we have a paradox. Did you notice it? The difference between verse 11 and verse 12? I mean verse 12 and verse 13? Notice what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So which is it? Am I responsible for Yes, ma'am. It is both. Am I to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Yes. Scripture says I am to. Is it God who works in me, His perfect will and purpose? Yes. It is a team effort. It is a cooperative effort. I do not, I cannot, 
I am not able to do all that is necessary for me to conform my life to the image of Jesus Christ. I cannot do that. That's why Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. Because he works in us and he works with us to conform our lives, to conform our attitudes, to conform our motives, to conform our affections to those of Jesus Christ. You cannot do it in the flesh. And God is not going to do it in spite of you. He calls us to cooperate with him, to work with him in performing that process of sanctification. Now here's the issue. Here's the issue. I know far too many Christians who want to live with Jesus in heaven but they don't want to walk with Jesus here on the earth. They want to live with Jesus in heaven, but they don't want to walk with Jesus here in the earth. I'm not saying every Christian has that attitude. I know a lot of Christians who do have that attitude. They want to have one hand holding on to Christ in heaven and the other hand holding on to others in the world. And they're torn between the two. And you ask them, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Oh yes, I want to go to heaven when I die. Are you living the sanctified life? Ah, I don't know. I don't know. We want to live with Jesus in heaven but we don't want to walk with Jesus here in the earth. And yet it is God's desire. It is God's desire that we become less like our sinful self and more like his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross. Now, all of this is just simply introductory to what we're going to be discovering in the next several Sundays about this thing called sanctification. So these are just cursory thoughts, ideas to help stimulate your thinking, to get the ball rolling in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit about what it is that God really desires in you and from you. The 80 years between your new birth in the kingdom of God and the time when you go to be with the Lord in glory. It is a process whereby Becoming more and more like Jesus is achieved. It's a process whereby being conformed to the image of Christ is achieved. The process of being conformed to the image of Christ is not easy. It's not easy. But it's not impossible either. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. We have to have his help. We have to lean heavily upon him. We have to listen to him. We have to follow his leading in our lives because for us in the flesh it is impossible. But with Christ Jesus all things are possible. Amen? Amen. And I want you to understand another thing. 
something that was fairly big back in the 1970s and early 80s. Sanctification or growing in the Spirit or becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is not passive. There was a big saying that went around in those days, let go and let God. That is not a biblical concept. We do not let go and let God. God is not going to grow us up in Christ Jesus without our participation. Paul tells us here that we need to be cooperating with God in this process so that we can be conformed to His Son. So let go and let God is not a biblical concept. We are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling while God works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The progress of our sanctification depends upon our willingness to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that sanctification. And beloved, that's why some Christians are spiritually more mature and effective and fruitful than others. That's really the bottom line. Well, how come... You know, I don't have a, a prayer life like that person. Or how come I can't uh, win people to faith in Christ like that person? Or how come I can't teach like that person? Or how come I can't... So on and so forth. Number one, you may not be called to do those things because all of us have spiritual gifts and many of them differ from person to person, but they're all listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and following. You may not have the same spiritual gifts as the other individual that you admire. Maybe God has not called you to do that. But by and large, spiritual maturity or the lack thereof falls squarely on your willingness, my willingness to participate with the Holy Spirit in conforming my life to the image of Jesus Christ. If I am willing to take God at His word, and if I am willing to follow the Holy Spirit of the Lord as He leads me in Bible study, as He leads me in prayer, as He leads me in witnessing, as He leads me in teaching, as He leads me in preaching, as He leads me in, in the various aspects of ministry that He calls me to do, when I am willing to get off my duff and get out of the house and go and do what the Holy Spirit of God is calling me to do, then I begin to see how the spiritual maturity in my life increases, develops, grows, becomes more and more powerful, more and more effective, more and more fruitful. And so again, the progress of sanctification depends upon our willingness to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And as I stated over the next several Sundays, we're going to unpack this. We're going to be taking a look at this because I think it's a very important doctrine that we need to explore. The Apostle Paul presents it here in the course of going through the book of Philippians, so I think it's important for us to understand what it is exactly he's talking about. 
and how you and I can plug into this sanctification process so that we can become more effective as individual Christians in the kingdom of God and collectively as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Winton. And so some of the things we're going to be looking at is when this sanctification process begins. Second, how sanctification develops in the life of a person. And third, the twofold completion of sanctification in the life of the believer. Now, why do some Christians, why do some individuals who say they are Christian, why do some Christians not want to live their life for Jesus? You don't need to answer that. Just think about it. Why do some Christians not want to live their life for Jesus? What motivates them to be spiritually slackers? What motivates them to back away from commitment to following Jesus Christ. I could list a number of them and you can as well. But my interest this morning and as we again work through this doctrine of sanctification is the motives for which we would want to live for Jesus. Why we would want to engage in the sanctification process. What are some of the motivations that would cause us to want to be sanctified, to struggle in the sanctification process, to gladly struggle in the sanctification process. Let me share some of those motives with you very briefly. Number one, your love for Jesus. Your love for Jesus. Someone said, I don't know, it was a long time ago, I wrote it down, don't remember who was that said it, but I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. Some person said, quote, in the very heart of the true believer is a love for Jesus Christ. In the very heart of the true believer is a love for Jesus Christ. If there is no love for Jesus in one's heart then Jesus is not in that one's heart. Nancy and I were watching a program where R.C. Sproul was talking about these kinds of things. And he was talking about love for the Lord in one's heart. And he asked the question, it was in front of a large crowd of people, 5,000 people or something like that, and it was a, it was a conference. And he said, he said, do I love the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly in my heart? No, I don't. I don't. Well, then do I love Jesus Christ Completely, though not perfectly? 
in my heart? No, I don't. He said, but even though I may not love Jesus Christ perfectly in my heart, and even though I may not love him completely in my heart, there is in my heart a genuine love for Jesus. And that's what marks the difference between a true believer and simply one who professes to believe. They have the love of Jesus in their heart. It may not be perfect and it may not be complete, but the love for Jesus is there. And that should be a motivating factor in every Christian's mind, heart, and spirit to engage in the sanctification process, the process whereby we grow up in the Lord to be more like Him and less like ourselves in the world. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21 of the same book, same chapter, He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be beloved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so the question has to be asked, do you really love Jesus? Second, a second motivating factor that would help us engage in sanctification is to have a clear conscience before God. To have a clear conscience before God. Christians who are worldly and disobedient and rebellious toward God are the most miserable people on the face of the planet. They are burdened down with guilt and with spiritual conviction. Non-believers don't have that, but rebellious Christians do. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some have strayed. And we know those who have strayed. The Apostle Peter follows up by stating in 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Having a good conscience. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may, be, may not be ashamed. How's your conscience this morning? A third motivation to engage in the sanctification process is to be an effective instrument in bringing honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His kingdom. To bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. In a great house, the Apostle Paul writes, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, from the latter, from dishonor. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Most of us would not eat out of dirty bowls. As a matter of fact, some of us, when we go to the restaurants to have lunch or something like that, 
Quite often I'll see one of, uh, one of the individuals, either at our table or somebody else's table, will pick up a fork and look at it and say, ooh! And they'll call the waiter to come over and take the spoon or take the fork because they don't want to eat from a dirty spoon or a dirty fork. When we are not conscious of our condition, when we are not aware of how powerful Satan is, when we are not aware of how influential the world is and peer pressure is, and we allow these things to come into our life, they mess up the vessel of God. You are a vessel of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you allow the filth of the world to come into your life, you become an unfit vessel for the master's use. He can't use you like he would want to use you, like you were saved to be used because you have soiled your spiritual garments in the things of the world. The fourth motivation is to see non-Christians come to faith in Jesus Christ through our witness. To see other people come to faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 2, and verses 15 and 16. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. But sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Now, here's the thing. If I live the Christ life, if I am serious about living my faith in my home, in my neighborhood, in my church, in my community, wherever God leads me to be, if I live my Christian faith, somebody is going, that's going to irritate somebody. That's going to cause other people to question, well, what, you know, what's with this guy? You know, uh, when other people, a death in the family, I was talking to one of the individuals the other day when I was conducting a funeral and they were all broken up and so on and so on and so on and so on about the death of their mom. And I tried to console them and comfort them and, you know, your mom's in heaven. She's with the Lord. Her faith has now been made sight. The promises of Christ have now been fulfilled. She's not suffering in this life anymore. And he asked me, he said, have you ever lost your mother? And I said, yes, I did. My mother died when she was 58. She died of ovarian cancer. Well, what did you do? Well, I preached her funeral. What? I preached her funeral. Well, how could you do that? Weren't you all tore up and broken up and, and sad and all of that? How could you do that? Well, let me tell you. My mother was a fine Christian woman. And she raised me to be a Christian man. She and my father both. When I was born, they dedicated me to the Lord's service before I was a day old. And the Lord has been working in my life and the Lord has been using my life 
to help individuals deal with death, to deal with sorrow, to deal with grief, to deal with all of these other kinds of things that you're having to deal with right now, the answer, my friend, is Jesus. Jesus has given me the courage. He has given me the boldness. He has given me the wherewithal to stand over my mother's casket and to preach her funeral and to tell people what a godly Christian woman she really had been in my life. And I ain't sad about that at all. I'm not grieved over that at all. I miss my mother. But I'm glad that she was the woman that God wanted her to be in my life. And when crisis comes, and I do the things that I do, and hopefully you do the things that you do, somebody's going to ask the question, well, why are you different? Why does that not bother you like it bothers me? And that will give you an open door to say, hey, let me talk to you about Jesus. The sixth motive well, really the fifth, and that is to receive the continued blessings of the Lord in our life and work. To, to continue to receive the blessings of the Lord in our life and work. The Lord makes it very clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that those who are obedient to His Word, He blesses, and those who are disobedient, He does not bless. Those who are obedient, He blesses, He is pleased. But those who are disobedient, He withholds blessing. And so I ask the question, are you blessed today of the Lord? Has the Lord blessed you with peace, with protection, with provision, with power, with perseverance in times of trial and times of temptation, and yet you're living in a world that offers none of these things? Has God blessed you with these things? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this and that you may inherit that blessing. The sixth motivation is to avoid God's displeasure and chastisement. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 17. Therefore... Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in holy respect and in honor for the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The seventh motivation in living the sanctified life is the desire to receive a greater heavenly reward. The desire to receive a greater heavenly reward. And that is not, that is not unchristian. I've heard people tell me that, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be living for Jesus so you'll have a greater reward in heaven. Oh, yes, I do. Absolutely, I live and I strive to be what God wants me to be, to do what Christ wants me to do so that I will have a greater reward in heaven. Well, that's kind of selfish, isn't it? No. And I'll tell you why. Jesus said in Matthew six nineteen to 21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, what is the purpose for laying up treasures in heaven? Jesus says we ought to, so we need to be about doing that, right? But why? Why do we need to be laying up treasure in heaven? I'll tell you why. It is so that I can take whatever crowns that the Lord blesses me with and whatever treasures in my life that I lay up in store in heaven, I can take all of those things and I can lay them at the feet of Jesus in praise and in gratitude for being able, through His Holy Spirit, being able to Give those rewards back to Him because He is the one who is to be honored and glorified, not me. Amen. Not me. I want to have a boatload of crowns and treasures when I get to heaven so I can take all of them and give them back to Jesus. The eighth motivation, and there's ten, so we're almost done. The eighth motivation to live the sanctified life is to experience a closer walk with Jesus in this life. To experience a closer walk with Jesus in this life. In walking in close fellowship with Jesus, and here's a key thing, the closer you walk with Jesus, the less power the world is going to have in your life. It's only when we stray off the path, when we're not walking with Jesus, when we stray off the path that we become vulnerable to the enemy, we become weak, and Satan is able to get at us and to mess things up in our lives, but if we consciously, willfully, longingly desire to walk in close fellowship with Jesus, doing what we need to do in the process of the sanctified life, I'm not saying that Satan is not going to come at you. I'm not saying that Satan and the world's not going to devise means whereby they can get at you. No, I'm not saying that at all. But they will have less power in dealing with you, getting into those areas of weakness, the chinks in the armor. Galatians 5, verses 16 and 18. Walk in the Spirit, Paul says, and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The closer walk with Jesus empowers you in a greater way to say no to the things of the world. Number nine, the longing for peace in life. Sanctification, the process of sanctification, brings peace into a person's life, a Christian's life. Are you troubled today? 
with the war in Ukraine, with the drug wars in Mexico and Colombia, with the ethnic wars in South Sudan, with civil war in Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Yemen? Are you troubled today with what's going on in our own country, the economic, political, racial, and medical problems? Do they burden you down in your spirit? Do they keep you awake at night? Do they cause you to worry over the future? Listen to the prophet Isaiah Chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. You, speaking of the Lord, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. You will keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength. Finally, A motivation for engaging in the sanctified life is the desire to do what God commands. Obedience. It is the desire to do what God commands. Why? Because His commands are right. His commands are good. His commands are to our benefit. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is one who comes alongside us and brings our life out of the miry muck of sin and brings us into the marvelous light of His glorious kingdom. His commands are right. His commands are good. His commands are beneficial. And we should delight in doing what pleases God. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law remains within my heart. But let me ask the question in closing. Just a simple question in closing. Why wouldn't a Christian, why wouldn't a Christian want to walk faithfully in fellowship with the one who gave his life on a cross to remove the judgment of death upon you and to give you eternal life in him? Why wouldn't you want to walk in fellowship with a person who gave his life for you to make your life better than it could ever be? Why wouldn't you walk in fellowship with that person? And so Christians, I'm asking you to consider seriously this matter of sanctification, working with God in your life, to make you less what you were as a sinner in this world and more like Jesus Christ who has prepared a place for you in His heavenly kingdom. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, David. Come and lead us in a song and we'll dismiss. We are in a marathon, not a sprint, right? That's right. Absolutely. I don't know about you, but as he's speaking, I'm thinking that we live in this age of instant gratification. We want everything now. But yet with God, it's the processes we know. And it will be in His time. Yes. In His time.
Father, keep us patient, keep us willing, give us the desire to work with you in our lives, to be what you want us to be, and not to remain as we are. Father, as we leave the house, may we go and live for Jesus in such a way that people will see Christ in us. And we'll want to know the reason why we're different people. Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Let us rely upon the Holy Spirit to give us the words to say so that you can draw them to salvation and they can commit their life to Jesus Christ who saves. Because it's in his holy name I pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and have a good day. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.